dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 tells us that the ruler of the earth is conspiring against Christ. The first epistle of John tells us that the entire world is under the dominion of the devil. The apostle Paul tells us that everyone who wants to live a godly life will face persecution. We also know that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We know that the gate of hell will never prevail against the church. We know that Christ will dash into pieces those rulers who are conspiring against him. We even know that the sufferings of this present age are nothing compared to the glory that is to come. And that nothing shall separate us from the love of God manifested to us in Christ Jesus. However, despite all our knowledge, we are still in an unredeemed body. Consequently, we sometimes despair when the torrents, the floods of ungodliness, persecutions, afflictions confront us. Christ knows our weaknesses. And that's why he promised to us that he will return to deliver us. That's why he encourages us not to despair because of his absence. The comfort that we receive, that we derive from Christ's promise, is what the church confesses in question and answer 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Therefore, my assignment this afternoon is to preach to you the comfort of Christ's return as summarized in question and answer 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The theme of this sermon is, do not despair, Christ is coming back. Do not despair, Christ is coming back. The theme is subdivided in three points. First, Christ is coming Second, Christ will judge. Third, Christ will comfort. Christ is coming. Christ will judge. Christ will comfort us. Our first point, Christ is coming. In the first line of the question and answer, we read, in all my sorrow and persecution. So what are those sorrows and persecution? Those are the difficulties that the Christian faces because he's still living in a fallen world and because he must contend against the unholy trinity. What is the unholy trinity? These are our flesh, the system of this world, and the devil. Daily, the Christian must fight against the weakness of his flesh the enticements of the system of this world, and all the lies of the devil. Besides the unholy trinity, the Christian faces the difficulty of living in a fallen world. The land has been cursed, so we must toil hard, fight against thorns and thistles to provide for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. Since God has cursed the creation because of us, we experience sicknesses and death. 
calamities such as earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, droughts, and many others. All over the world, the World War Church also experiences the consequences of bad governance such as civil war and various kinds of oppression. Even children can find life difficult, isn't it? Sometimes school is tough and obeying very difficult. So you see with me that the list is endless. As if those sufferings were not enough, Christians in some regions of the world are singled out for persecution. And those persecutions can take various forms. In Canada, you have an incremental change of the laws to make Christians miserable, to present them to the general population as the haters, the bigoted, who must not be tolerated. In France, you have the burning of churches and the aggression of Christians in the street. In China, you have the jailing of ministers and the closing of Christian schools. And in Nigeria, you have the cutting down of Christians with machetes. And these are just some examples of the persecutions that Christ's people face. Why such a fury against Christ's people? Why? Because the world cannot help but persecute the church whenever they can. Why can they help? Because there is a natural enmity between the seed of the woman and the snake. It is a fact even more certain than gravity. So we must incorporate that in our thoughts. As surely as a stone thrown into the air falls, surer is the fact that the system of this world detests the church. Amid all these difficulties and persecutions, what do we do? Do we get into our corner, afraid? Do we cry until we make a lake with our tears? No. We must not do as we please. The Catechism confesses that we must lift our head and eagerly await. What does it mean to lift our head and await? The Catechism is borrowing this expression from Luke 20, 21, verse 28. Let us open our Bibles and read together. Luke 21 verses 25 through 28. Luke 21, verses 25 through 28. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations, in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. 
for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. In this passage, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the end times. He gives various descriptions of the calamities that will be happening before his return. Then he tells them that when those calamities and sufferings happen, the world will be overwhelmed with fear and despair. But Jesus' disciples should not despair. They should lift up their head. Why? Because their final salvation is approaching. So we understand that to lift up one's head means to take courage, to be joyful, to refuse to despair. Thus, the catechism is repeating the words of Jesus in telling us that the sufferings and persecution that the church is currently facing should not drive us to despair. On the contrary, we should stand firm with joyful confidence, knowing that the Lord is coming back. Again, when the world hates us because we belong to Christ, let us remember that Christ is coming back. When temptations and sins are harassing you, remember that Christ is coming. When you suffer sicknesses and whatever affliction because you are in a fallen world, remember Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Christ is coming, brothers and sisters. Let us remember that he's coming to take us. We have just learned in this first point that we must joyfully and confidently await Christ. But what makes Christ so precious, so captivating and delightful to Christians? Let us see in our second point. Christ will judge. The catechism confesses that we, that we, we are eagerly awaiting as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from us. What does the catechism remind us about Christ here in these lines? The catechism reminds us that Christ is judge, that he paid the price for all our sins and satisfied the wrath of God against us. We just learned this morning that our cup overflows because Christ drank the entire cup of the wrath of the Lord. So that's what the catechism is saying here. How can Christ accomplish those two roles? How can he be the judge and at the same time the atoning sacrifice? For that, let us read Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 1, 
verses 1 through 4. We read, long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In this text, the Holy Spirit teaches us that the word of Christ is the ultimate revelation from God. The Holy Spirit teaches that we should not expect in this present age any revelation in addition to what we have received from Christ and his apostles. Why? Because Christ is God. Christ is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, meaning that he is of the same nature with the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God, meaning, the, meaning that just like light is intimately associated to, his, to its rays, the Father and the Son are so intimately united. The Father cannot be without the, the Son and the Son cannot be without the Father. It is beyond our comprehension. And yet, they are different. They are distinct. No one has ever seen the Father, but his unique, but his unique Son, who is from the bosom of the Father, has explained him, as John 1.18 tells us. So we learn that Jesus has the divine nature and the, the, the divine nature and the natural authority which gives him the right to judge the world. The passage continues. The passage also tells us that after making the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does it mean? This means that after making the complete purification of God's people, as well as the heavenly temple, Christ sat at the position of the highest possible authority in the universe, which is the right hand of God. Now, let us think together. Who did the consecration of the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Do you remember? It was Moses, the mediator, who oversaw the making of the yearly purification of the temple in the Old Testament. It was the high priest. Thus, you see that Christ, in offering himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and in purifying the heavenly temple, 
Christ acted as the sacrifice, the mediator of the covenant, and the high priest. And since he is high priest of the heavenly temple, he is then the great high priest. Therefore, the catechism confesses with scriptures that the same Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who is the ultimate mediator between God and man, who continuously intercedes for us at the right hand of God, that that same Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sake. And that same Jesus is the one who will come as judge from heaven. The one who gave himself for our salvation, who paid the price of the damnation that we deserve, is coming back to judge us. Do you think that when Jesus Christ will return, do you think that he will require another payment after having sacrificed his life? No, no. Jesus is a just and gracious judge. He has paid the price once for all. Because of the great love that the Father has for the church, he did not just give Jesus as a sacrifice. He also established Jesus as head of the church. So we are united to Christ. We are members of Christ's household. Much more, we are members of Christ's body. And that's why the enemies of Christ are our enemies too. That's why in the effort to attack Christ, Christ's enemies attack us. They attack the church. And that's why when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road of Damascus, he did not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? But he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What does this mean? It means that persecuting the church equates persecuting Christ. So if you are in Christ, God sees you whenever he looks at Christ. And whenever God looks at you, he sees Christ because you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that's why Christ is so precious to us as Christians. Christ is our Lord, our head, our advocate. Christ is our justification, our righteousness, our sanctification. Christ is our redeemer, our mediator, our comforter. Christ is our hope, our peace, our joy. Christ is our great high priest, our prophet by excellence, our king. So Christ is everything to us. He's the reason of our lives. And that's why he's so precious, captivating, delightful to us. That's why we yearn to see him returning. And that's why we can say with the church of all ages, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, has enemies. 
he has haters. Who are they? What must someone do to be accounted as an enemy of Christ? The answer is this. All those who refuse to embrace Christ's offering of forgiveness, all those who refuse to submit to him are his enemies. And they are therefore also the enemies of every true Christian. So even if your neighbor is a kind neighbor to you, smiling all the time, if he doesn't love Christ, he is an enemy of Christ, and therefore your enemy. And what will Christ do to his enemies? He will send them to hell. Since they have refused to love him, he will send them where they do not need to love him. Since they have refused to be at peace with him, he will send them to the place where they will be continuously at war against him. And there, they will endure his fury. How, does, how do we apply, apply this? From this, we understand that if someone offends you, you do not need to be bet, uh, bitter. You do not need to seek to have your pound of flesh. If the person offending you is an enemy of Christ, you can be assured that Christ will repay that person in full when he comes back. But if the person is a member of Christ, then Christ has paid for that person. And therefore, you may not demand another payment. In Christ, we have all the resources that it takes to forgive. Wherefore, when you feel bitterness or a desire of revenge rising, swelling up in your heart, pray God and ask him to help you remember what Christ has done and what he will do when he comes back. So what did we see so far? We saw that Christ has the divine nature necessary to judge the universe. He has also the human nature necessary to die for us. In other words, by the power of his divine nature, he could bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath against our sins. And that's how the one who submitted himself to God's judgments on our behalf is also the one coming from heaven to judge us, to judge the entire earth. So now let us see how Christ will comfort believers at his second coming. This will be our last point. Christ will comfort us. What does the catechism confess about the comfort of Christ's return? In the catechism we read, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Let us then open our Bibles in 2 Thessalonians 1, 
verses 6 to 10. There you will see one of the places where the catechism gets this teaching concerning the comfort that Christ will bring to believers. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his sins and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. In this text, the apostle Paul writes to the people in the city of Thessalonica. Those people were suffering, were suffering greatly from persecution. What does the apostle say to them? He said that God is just. God considers it a just thing to avenge himself on all those who are persecuting the church in Thessalonica. God sees all the wickedness that the Thessalonians are enduring. And since God has himself said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, the apostle assures our Thessalonians brothers that when Jesus comes back, he will avenge them. Not only will Jesus avenge them, but he will also bring them relief, putting a complete end to all their sufferings. We understand then that when our Redeemer comes, it will put an end to temptations and sin. Can you imagine that, brothers and sisters? No more battle against our flesh, against the system of this world, against the devil. The ability to enjoy Jesus' presence to the fullest of our redeemed humanity. When Jesus comes, he will give us new, perfect, healthy bodies, when Jesus comes, he will give us an, the entire earth as our inheritance. Is that not glorious? Furthermore, there is something even greater than the end of all our sufferings, than the gifts that Jesus Christ will give to us. And that thing is, we will marvel at Christ. We will see him face to face in all his glory, and in a miraculous way, he will satisfy our deepest needs and desire. Just being in his presence will bring us a satisfaction beyond imagination, beyond comprehension. Jesus will literally be himself our great reward when he comes back. So remember these things. Remember these things when you hear of the persecution of your brothers and sisters. 
Remember these things when sin harasses you. Remember these things when you are sick. Remember these things when you suffer affliction, when you are persecuted because of your faith, when the government is becoming tyrannical. Remember all those things. Remember, remember, remember that Christ is coming back and refuse to despair. On the contrary, lift up your head, stand firm with joyful confidence for your Savior is coming back to judge the earth. When Christ, in whom our lives are hidden, will appear, we shall also appear with him in glory. Amen.